Uh, this morning, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 10. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. I'm going to pick it up in 1 through 5 and kind of go through 14, 17, a little bit like that. Um, I've titled this one, Saved and Sent. Okay, saved and sent, because the assumption in this chapter, and really all throughout Scripture, is that if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been saved by him, then simultaneously you have also been sent into the world on mission and given this mandate and opportunity to go and to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, a resurrected king, to the entire world in which we live. And so he's going to re- bring that up. And you heard this really talk about this a couple weeks back in chapter 10 where Paul comes in and he says, how is anyone supposed to call on him if they haven't even believed in him? How are people supposed to believe in him if they haven't even heard about him? How are people going to hear about him um, if nobody's proclaiming the news and believes that they've been sent. And so this is the direction he's going to go. And of course, the implication here is that you and I, uh, you and I as believers, we are the ones that have to go and be sent. We are the ones who go into the world and we bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world in which we live. And so right up front, I just want to let you know, this is going to be a message and this is going to be kind of a section of scripture that I think is going to push on us a little bit. Because it's, a, because it's a pretty unpopular thing to talk about evangelism today. Um, let me just throw out this word right here and see how you respond to it. Um, proselytization. Proselytizing. Like, how do you feel when you hear that word? Uh, it, it's, it's this desire to communicate a message in such a way that you want the other person to convert to the way that you're thinking. Like, like there could be, there's very little that is more offensive to our cultural senses today than saying those words, evangelism, proselytizing, or desiring someone to come into a, a way of thinking that you have today. It's just a very, very unpopular thing. I, I think I shared with you a study a little while ago where Barna researchers were saying that nearly 47% of all believers who are under 40 years old actually believe that it's immoral for you to go and to share your faith with someone else in such a way that you hope that they come to faith. Proselytizing, immoral behavior. And, and I think we see and understand some of the different cultural things. I don't know if you all are able to see some of those things. We can throw that one. I think it's a little too small for us. But I think that we can see some of the cultural things that are taking place that kind of lead us to that. There's some things and there's some shifts that have taken place whereby we no longer have the foundation of truth to go and to speak with anyone else about that truth and hope that they would see. We live in a culture today where we say things like, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me right? How dare you step on my feet or anything like that? And so that, those foundations are gone. And so we're coming into this conversation, and it's a very, very unpopular conversation to be having. Nearly 40% of, uh, of millennials, people under 40 years old, believe that if someone disagrees with you, then they're necessarily judging you in their disagreement, right? And, and just by a point of comparison, this is very different than other generations, right? There's a culture shift that's taken place. Uh, somewhere around 22% of Gen X believes that. So nearly twice as many young people under 40 are believing that. Uh, and that Gen X is twice as much as boomers and elders. 9% for boomers, 11% for elders. Point of the matter is there's a cultural shift that has taken place that says, you know what, this is a really, really unpopular thing to be talking about today. Even in Christian circles, you're picking this up in blogs and things like that. I was listening to, or I was reading a, a blogger put it like this the other day. A Christian blogger said this, I know that we're supposed to tell people about Jesus, but I hate the idea of pushing someone against their will to convert to my way of seeing God. When I talk to people of other world religions, I don't want to come across looking like I believe my religion is better than theirs. It feels arrogant to believe that. 
And so this is one side of the tension that we have when it comes to evangelism and, and this thing that the scriptures are going to call us to, to go and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Like it feels arrogant today. There's a shift that's taken place whereby something that used to be normative and assumed, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to talk about that saving hope that you have inside of your soul, that thing you've placed, that you've trusted in and that has brought you life. You're going to talk about that all the time. Like there's a shift. And so it's a really, really unpopular thing we talk about today. I think that's just one part of the tension. The other part of the tension is, when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about this idea of sharing the gospel and things of that nature, a lot of times it could be just be flat out, just really, really awkward conversations, right? I don't know if you've ever engaged before, ever done this, you've had that conversation or you've sat there and said, I have a friend, I have a neighbor, I have someone in my life that I want to share the gospel with. I don't know how to bring it up. It's not necessarily coming up while we're playing basketball or golf or like, how do I get into this thing? It could produce some really, really awkward conversations. I'll never forget one of the first times I I shared my faith um, early in the college days, but I, I think I've told you this in the past, but I was like, my faith really began exploding late in high school and early in college. But I remember sitting in the, uh, it was just outside the Memorial Student Center at Texas A&M, and I'm overlooking the quads area. There's tons of people coming and going, and I was reading scriptures, and God was just doing a lot of stuff inside my soul. I'm reading it, and I'm just, I'm sensing a lot of calling towards ministry at that point in time, and I was meditating on God's word at that time, and I was reading it a lot, and I just had this strong conviction. I wanted to go share it with somebody. And I was like, I got to go tell somebody what's going on. And so I, I walk outside and I see this guy sitting on the bench and he's reading a newspaper. And I think to myself, okay, this is the guy, this is who I'm supposed to go share with. And I walk up and, um, <laughs> and it's one of the most awkward encounters I think I've ever had. Because I walk up to him, it's kind of like I'm asking a girl out on a date or something like that. It's like, I, I, I absolutely froze as soon as I got there. He's sitting on the bench and I walk up and, I, and I'm about to sit, but I kind of don't sit and I just get really, really weird. And the guy looks up at me and he's like, hey, man. And I was like, hey. And I sit down next to him and I was like, so, you know, like, what you reading? And he's like, it's a newspaper. And he looked over at me and I didn't know what to say after that. Now, I'm not kidding. The dude just stood up and he just walked off, which I don't blame him one bit for doing. He just walked out of there. I'm sitting there frozen on that bench going like, that was a massive, massive failure, right? I hadn't been trained. I didn't know what exactly what I was doing. All I knew is like, this is a message that needs to be shared. Like, this is a message that needs to get out there. And I sat there, just massive failure. And I think what happens is we have, we've had those experiences a number of times or else you've seen it in other ways or it gets in your head and you're sitting there going, okay, well, that's what's going to happen, right? They're going right, to hand me a grenade and my life is going to be over if this goes, poor, if this goes poorly. Um, other times we get in our head and we're sitting there going, okay, what about the tough questions of the faith? And what if they go there with me and I don't know how to respond? Like, what about people who have never heard the gospel before? Right? How do I, if, what am I supposed to say to that? Like, it, what if I'm harming the cause of Christ by bringing awareness to people who otherwise would have been saved by their naivety? You ever asked that before? Like, what if naivety is easier to forgive than a flat out uh, rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You get into your head sometimes and you start thinking some of these things. But the point of the matter is that we have so many different things going on that keep us on the sidelines. Meanwhile, the assumption that's here in this text is that if you have been saved, you have been sent. 
And so I want to blow up some of these things that keep us on the sidelines so much, and I want to do it here in Romans chapter 10. Again, if you want to pick up there, we're going to hang out in the first five verses here, but if you're just joining us in this series here in Romans, we're coming off one of the more difficult chapters in this text. The entire thing is about the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul lines it up, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not ashamed. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so the entire thing is all about the gospel. It's building up all the different nuances there. Chapter 9 is going to get into the paradox of responsibility we talked about, and that is that difference. That is that really that difficult tension between the sovereignty or the all-knowing power and control of God and our human responsibility in the middle of it. And so chapter 9 is really weird. It's just kind of, it's dealing with that tension a little bit, and, and we've defined it as this. We said, yeah, God is sovereign. He is in control. Chapter 8, he talks about that a little bit. He says, uh, those he foreknew, he also predestined, is using big, heavy theological words there. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified and declared righteous. Those he justified, he will glorify one day still future. All these big, heavy theological terms simply to say what God began in the past, what he knew before you were ever born, he will bring about to fruition. And then we also talked about the paradox of responsibility is in the middle of that sovereignty, you and I also have responsibility. And the choices we make, they absolutely matter. Now, how that absolutely perfectly plays out, we'll fully understand one day still future. But in the meantime, it is okay to rest in that paradox of responsibility. And so the reason I bring that up is because that's where he is in chapter 10. In chapter 10, he's moving away from the sovereignty of God, and he's moving in, not away from the sovereignty of God, don't misunderstand me there, but he is moving more and more into the responsibility to believe and our responsibility to go and share this good news that God has loved us so much already in in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he gets into this with a lament. And he begins chapter 10, and he says this. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Remember that he's speaking about lost Israel at this time. If if nothing can separate it from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus at the end of chapter 8, then how do you explain Israel? It seems like Israel has walked away from him. And so he's saying, my brothers, like my heart's desire, my prayer to God is for them, lost Israel, my Jewish brothers and sisters, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, But it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own sense of righteousness. I don't know if you're a note taker or anything like that. You got it in your Bible. You want to circle that word own sense of righteousness right there. But he says that. He says being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own sense of righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And so he sets up this this comparison here. And he says, okay, there's our own sense of righteousness And then there's God's sense of righteousness. And he says humanity, the Jews in particular that he's speaking over right right here, they they have their own sense of righteousness. And then they have what's what's known as God's, how he defines it, and what he says is required in order for you to attain his righteousness here. And what he's saying about this is you and I, we can be really, really passionate about your own sense of righteousness. You can be really, really disciplined in how you live. But if it is not according to the knowledge of God and his righteousness, then it counts for nothing. I'll never for, this is what's going on with Israel, by the way, right? It, it, it matters for not. I'll never forget a number of years ago, um, I was working at uh, Thanksgiving Square downtown Dallas. And uh, it was the beginning of the seminary days. And uh, I went to an event out there. Honestly, it was more of a universalistic event. There was a lot of different religious leaders out there. And... Um, 
and it wasn't a specifically Christian event or anything like that, but I was standing next to a Muslim imam at that time, and they were giving a message that was really about like, pretty much how all, all roads lead to the same God, and we're all pretty much doing the exact same thing, and you know, none of our distinctions matter and that kind of ordeal. And I'm sitting next to this Muslim guy, and he leans over to me and goes, don't you hate these kinds of things? He goes, don't you hate it when they pretend like we're not all sitting here wanting to convert each other? <laughs> and I was like, whoa. And I've told you that one before, but I'm sitting there, I was like, I go, you believe, I was like, you want to convert me? He's like, yeah, I do. And I was like, me too. I want to convert you too. Right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. He's like, we all do because we understand like there's, that there's a righteousness that only matters if it comes from God. Right? And we had this incredible conversation where like our own sense of righteousness, whatever we make up in our own mind, what we think is right and wrong, at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is God's righteousness. And how he defines you and I can attain that righteousness, be declared righteous before him. This is what he's saying. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to convert me because he's understanding that all of my passion for my own faith, from his perspective, none of it matters if it's not aligned with God's righteousness. And I'm sitting there going like, hey, all of your passion over here, like your incredible discipline, the fact that you get up five times a day and you pray, none of that matters if it, unless it is aligned with God's sense of righteousness over here. And so Paul comes at the beginning of this thing, and he's lamenting for his people. And he calls us to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because the reality is that our God is a knowable God who's made himself known. But the thing of the matter is that we've, we've always had this tension with him. We, we, we've, we, we've known who he is, but we've never really known who he is. We suppress the truth about him. This is what we talked about all the way back in chapter 1. And this is where he begins to develop the problem of humanity. But in chapter 1, Paul's going to say, The wrath of God is revealed again, from heaven against all the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. In other words, what he's saying here is, again, the chief problem of man is not our ignorance, necessarily. It's not this idea that, that, hey, we just did not know about God. We had no opportunity to know about God, and that God is completely unknowable. He's this one who's hiding out in the heavens, does not want us to know him or anything like that. The chief problem of man is not necessarily our ignorance about the truth. It is our suppression of the truth which is very, very different from ignorance. Ignorance says, you know what, I had no idea about the truth, whereas suppression is looking at the truth, it's able to see the truth, but it's simply pushing it to the side, saying I want nothing to do with the truth, because that truth is inconvenient for me, or I don't like that truth, or I simply just don't want to deal with that truth at all. I'll never forget, um, I say that a lot, uh, it's the number, probably the, my freshman year of college, I was at Tomball Community College at this time, and um, right before the A&M time. And uh, it was a weird class day where the professor of philosophy there, he invited me to come and to share for five minutes. He goes, I'll give you five minutes and you can tell the class about what you believe about God. We'd had a lot of other conversations at that time and uh, things that kind of led up to that point. But it was a crazy opportunity right on the moment. He puts me on the spot. And so when class is finished, I'm having this conversation with the guy in the class we'd had a number of other encounters with. And he was really curious about things of God and, and uh, the Bible, what the Bible has to say about salvation. And we're talking about all these different kinds of things. And he's even agreeing with a, a lot of the premises. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is death and all the different things that are there. And I finally asked him, and I said, hey, what's keeping you from responding and saying yes to the gospel? And he simply says, you know what, I don't, he, he goes, I, he goes I, gotta, I, I, I like being in charge of my life. And he, he's like, he's like I don't know that I want to go there yet because I like my life the way that it is. 
He's like, I know that if all of these things are really true, then it's going to demand something different of my life. I like being on the throne of my life, essentially. And so this is what Tim Keller talks about when he says, we know about God, but we don't really know simply because we don't want to know. The, the problem is not necessarily ignorance. It's like we, we know it. We can see it in creation. We're going to talk about that one in a second. But we, we take it and we suppress it. Like I want to be on the throne of my life. And what he's saying here is that this is the chief problem of man. We have a knowable God who's made himself known. He wants to be known. We take that knowledge. We push it away. And, and we want nothing to do with him along the way. And what he's saying right here is like this is the chief problem of man. The argument all throughout Romans chapter 1 is like this is what's been taking place. Verse 19, chapter 1, he says, what can be known about God, it's plain to them. Right? We've suppressed the truth, and he says, what can be known about God, it's been made plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature. They've been clearly seen and perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, he's already made himself known. Like, we should be looking at the beauty of creation, and we should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of that beauty, all of that intentionality, all of the complexity that we see in creation, like, is God screaming, I am here? It's what David's singing about in Psalms when he says, The heavens declare the glory of God. His skies proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals his knowledge. In other words, like he's made himself known. I can look at the stars of the sky and I can see the handiwork of God all over the place. I can look at the complexity of the world and know that it screams about the beauty of God. Whenever the sun goes up and whenever it comes back down in a predictable way, it tells the story of an all-powerful and eternal God. It's why he says right here in the text, like, we have no excuse. Like, ignorance isn't a real thing because he's made himself known. We have no excuse, he says. He's made it, even in the complexity of creation, we should be able to see it and know that God is there. I'm driving down 35 the other day in Waco, Texas, and I see a billboard celebrating Baylor's National Championship. And I'm looking at that, ba that billboard, and it, it never occurs to me to sit there and be like, wow, what an incredible coincidence. Like, Baylor just happened to win a championship right now. Like, they're, they're celebrating this thing. Like, I understand that in the intentionality of that billboard, like, there's a message. And there's an author behind this message that is communicating something specific because he's there. And we know that beauty, we know that intelligence, we know that complexity, it's all pointing to a designer. Uh, Francis Collins talks about this a whole lot. He's one of the leading scientists in the world. But he marvels at the complexity of the universe. And he says, it's like the universe knew we were coming. And he says, hey, they're like, there's 15 constants, a gravitational constants, all these different things that have precise values in the world in which we live. If any one of these constants are off by one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the whole universe could not have come to the point where we see it today. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, no stars, no people, and no planets. I mean, we have to understand, church, like Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins, two of the leading skeptics and atheists in the world, like they all understand that this is a massive problem for what they actually believe right now. So Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, not Christian, right? Like very antagonistic to Christianity. He says, he says, Darwin's theory of evolution, it works for biology, it does not work for cosmology. Meaning, the, meaning the, the, the origins of the universe and things like that, like what materials caused the Big Bang. He says, cosmology is still waiting on its Darwin. 
right? Like Stephen Hawking, he says the exact same thing in one of his later books. He says, the laws of science as we know them at present, they contain, they contain so many different precise ratios, like the size of the electric charge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The remarkable fact is that these values of these numbers, they seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of human life. Church, like who in the world is doing the fine adjustments? Right? Like, who's, the, who's doing the fine adjustments? Like, a church, like, think about what it would take to create intelligent, intelligent life in a fully sustainable planet. Uh, one scientist put it like this. It would be like assuming an ink factory just exploded and magically produced the works of Shakespeare. Right? It's, it's, it's not possible. Like, it's not likely. It's not going to come and take place. It doesn't matter if you have billions and billions and billions of years. The likelihood of that taking place, it's not happening. And this is what he's revealed about himself in creation. He's saying, no, 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 this is who our God is. Like, well, the reason we share is because he's a knowable God. He's made himself known. He wants us to know who he is. The problem is we take that knowledge and we suppress the truth. And it's not just in creation, but like think about the different ways he's made himself known in our heart. Uh, what about the, the, our longings for love, our longings for an unconditional love, longings for purpose, our longings for eternity? By the way, this is the thing that brought C.S. Lewis to saving faith. We really like, he writes about this in Mere Christianity, but he talks about the argument from desire. And he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. I'm going to say that again. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires actually exists. A baby feels hunger because there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim because there is such a thing as water. Humans feel desire because there's such a thing as pleasure. So if I find in myself a desire for eternity, which no experience in the world is able to satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And church, like, this is the thing that like, C.S. Lewis, as a non-believer, before he comes to specific understanding of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, he's looking at creation. And we know theologically God is wooing him in through all the different things that he does to woo us in. But naturally speaking, C.S. Lewis is looking around at creation. And he's going, no, 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 okay, uh, this idea that this whole thing is an accident, it doesn't make any sense. Like I'm seeing his handiwork all around there and I'm seeing it inside of me. I'm seeing that even in my desires, it is pointing to the fact that there is a creator God who has made me in his image probably to be known. And so we could keep going all day long about all the different evidences, all the different things that scream of the knowledge of God. But the point of the matter, church, is like humanity's default is to take that knowledge and suppress it and to push it to the side and to say, I don't want to know this God who has made himself known. And so again, it's what Tim Keller talks about when he says, when it comes to the knowledge of God, the world, and we as naturally speaking, like we know him, but we don't really know him because the fact of the matter is we don't want to know him. And this is a problem that scripture talks about. It just keeps going downhill from here. Verse 21, in chapter one, like Paul sets up the argument, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, meaning like they didn't worship him as God. They knew he existed. They said, yeah, he's probably there. He created, he's spoken, but they didn't worship him as God. They didn't give him the honor that he's due. They didn't praise him. They didn't thank him for anything like that. Instead, it says, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts became darkened. And church, is exactly what we see around us today. Futile thinking, foolish hearts that are darkened our own sense of righteousness rather than the righteousness that has been revealed by God through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And of course, you know the argument in Romans if you've been coming around here. Paul doesn't let us sit there and say, hey, that's their problem out there. Chapter 2, he turns the corner a little bit and he says, hey, here's the mirror, Christians. You who are believers, don't be thinking, hey, this is just them out there. Like You do the same thing too. Futile in your thinking, foolish, darkened hearts that are not dealing with the truth in front of you and they're suppressing it every single day. And so on your seats, I don't know if you saw those as you came in today, but I brought these bands that we often use to go in to share the gospel. And if you want to grab these right here, like this is how the story plays out. As we bring the gospel into the world, like this is how the story plays out. It begins like this in chapter 3. He turns the corner a little bit. He says, there are none of us who are righteous. Like this is the predicament that we are in. There's none of us who are righteous, not even one person. He says in 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the yellow right here on the band. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's problematic because we know that black means death. The wages of sin is death. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. He says the wages of our sin is death. Meaning literally every single one of us are going to die one day because we're sinners. No one's ever escaped that judgment before ever. Spiritually, we, we are going to be separated from God for all of eternity apart from his saving grace in our life. Metaphorically, like our sin actually leads to death. It goes down and down and down and down and down. And we know that sin brings death and judgment. We even see this in chapter 1 when he says, The wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness, which is speaking of the ways that we think about God, and unrighteousness, which is the functional ways that it plays out in our relationship with one another. But he says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth. And then we see it play out a little bit later on when God essentially says, okay, I'm going to let you do what you want to do. And under the sovereignty of God, he lets us play that out. You want to go your own way? You, you can go your own way. He says, I'll give them up three different times at the end of chapter one. This is the way we see his judgment come out. His judgment is not always fire and brimstone in the temporal moment right then and there. Sometimes he simply says, fine, you want to wander? I'll let you wander. You want to have your own sense of righteousness and then go. You can follow your own sense of righteousness. You want to create your own moral structure? Create your own moral structure. But the problem is it won't be mine. And in doing so, you won't have me. You won't have the God who created. You won't have the wisdom of the God who spoke everything into being. You won't have the God who is defined by love and mercy and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and everything else. You won't have me. And so this is where the story turns and it begins to get good because in the middle of all of that sin and death, the word of God assures us over and over again that undoubtedly you and I are still loved. And that's what the red one stands for right here. It just simply stands for love. In the middle of all of that sin, in the middle of all of that death, in the middle of the hardness of heart, in the middle of the suppression of truth, God never stopped loving you and me. And this is the nature of who he is. This is the thing that defines who he is. His love is bigger than yours and mine. It's greater than yours and mine. It's bigger and more beautiful than anything we could ask or imagine. And in the middle of all of that thing, God never stopped loving us. And he demonstrates that love for us in Romans 5, 8. And that while you and I were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. In other words, he didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up first. This is the beauty of God's love for humanity. He doesn't come and say, here's my moral code. Go and clean yourself up. If you're good enough, you can be on my team. You and I will play together for all of eternity. It's not how he works. He says, no, no, no. While you were in your rebellion, 
while you were lost and dead in your sins, while you were hardened to the things of God, while you were walking in unrighteousness, while you were walking in ungodliness, while you were committed to so many other things, your own sense of righteousness. No, 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 no. Like, I never stopped loving you. I never, like, I knew you in your mother's womb. Like, I never stopped loving you. Like it was there in the garden and when he created us in love in these perfect conditions for us to thrive in relationship and Adam and Eve said, you know what, it's not enough. I'm still gonna go my own way. I'm gonna create my own sense of righteousness. I'm gonna go this direction over here and we walked away from him. He never stopped loving us. He provided a way for covering. He made a promise to you and me that one day there's gonna be an heir of Eve that's gonna come and stomp on Satan's head and it's exactly what he does. This is the testimony of Scripture. In the middle of all of our wandering, God never stopped loving you and me. It's there in the wandering of Israel. Over and over and over again, Israel is wandering. They're going up and down. They're running with Jesus, running with God the Father, and then running away from him. And then they're running with him, and then they're running from him. Over and over again, all throughout the cycles of Judges, they're going up and down, up and down, up and down, and God never stops loving them. This is the problem that Jonah had with God. You remember this? Jonah, the great prophet, he says, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites, the most wicked and evil people on the planet. And Jonah hates that assignment because they are the most wicked and evil people on the planet. And he runs from God and he says, I want nothing to do with them. And of course, God brings him back there and he says, okay, he puts him in this place where he has to preach. And he essentially says, great, 40 days and you'll all be dead. And literally, the Ninevites repent and they come to faith in Jesus, or to faith in God at that time. And you remember what Jonah says? He gets mad at God and he says, this is what I didn't want to happen. I knew that you were merciful. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you would forgive these evil and wicked people. This is why I didn't want to preach. But this is who our God is. Church, like while we were sinners, while we were as bad as Nineveh, the Assyrians at that time, like while you were in that place, he never stopped loving you. It's David and his adultery. And he's redeemed and he's restored later on. He's a man after God's own heart. Adulterous Gomer and Hosea. Like he never stops loving. Doubting Thomas, Peter in his denial. Scandalous Mary, even in her demon possession. Like God never stopped loving us. And so he demonstrates that love in the sending of his one and only son to come and to die in our place. And the reason that he has to die in our place is because he didn't just come to, as an example for how to live. The reason he came and he died in our place is because, again, that's what our sin deserved. This is the truth that we understand. Our sin deserves death. Our sin deserves eternal separation from God. But he loved us so much that he was not satisfied with that verdict. So he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to do for us what you and I could not do. He lived the perfect and holy and sinless life that you and I could not live. And he willingly went to the cross and he suffered and he bled and he died because that's what our sin deserved. And then he walked out of that tomb alive three days later, proving he is the son of God. He is who he says that he is. That he has power over sin and death. And then he offers you and I this free gift of salvation, his presence now, his power now, and, 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 and not only now, but for all of eternity. And he offers us this free gift of salvation totally and completely on the basis of his grace, which is undeserved favor, and it's received through faith. And so God has a story. God has an offering of righteousness. And we have our own sense of righteousness. And so the blue one right there is faith. Right? This is the faith one right here. It's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, It is by God's grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that none of us are able to boast. And so Paul keeps going and he writes about, again, there's a works-based righteousness. And he laments for Israel because Israel, in the middle of their religiosity, 
in the middle of their great works, this is a crew of people that loved go and be. They would go out there and they would serve. Right? They would go out there and they would hand out sandwiches. And they would go out there and they would do all these different kinds of things. They loved doing different things, but it wasn't on the basis of faith. It was on the basis of attaining a sense of righteousness. And so he writes about this right there, and he wraps it all up in Romans 10, 9 and 10, and he simply says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or declared righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And he's saying there's two types of righteousness that you can cling to, your own sense of righteousness and what you think it takes to be made right before a holy God. And then there's God's righteousness, which is so much higher than anything you could create your own. It is absolutely perfect. But it's been satisfied through the perfect life, the perfect death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has been a substitute for you. And so he says, which one are you going to cling to right here? And what Paul's saying here is, church, is that this is a message that has to be shared. This is a message that has to be shared. It's not a message. It's not a grace that's only received and that's kept in your closet for you to just sit there and, and, and dwell in every single day. Like, this is a message. He says, you can have life with me now and for all of eternity. And this is a message that needs to be shared. And so he continues on and he says, how in the world is anyone going to call on him unless they believed? How are they going to believe in him unless they've actually heard this spoken to them? How are they going to understand this? Like, how are they going to, how are they going to hear about him if no one's preaching it and no one believes that they've been sent and compelled by the gospel to go and to bring this good news into the world in which we live? And of course, his entire implication here is that if you have been saved, you have also been sent. And so I want to draw out a few words right here for us in this text before we wrap up here. And I want to apply them really in the context of really this next week as we go into go and be and really as we think about like how we bring the gospel into this world, but the words are very simply this, love, pray, and go. Love, pray, and go. I think we see love here at the very beginning here, but I'm talking specifically very much that God would do a work in us where we would love people, that we would love our community, that we would love our world as God loves the world. And so we need to pray this, and that we would come and we would say, okay, Father, would you come and do a work in me where I would love my community, where I would love my difficult family member, where I would love my neighbor who's on the other end of the political aisle from me, that I would love my coworker, that I would love people in a different country that I've never even met, that I would love people that are in a different socioeconomic bracket from me, as you have already loved them. But we see this in the text right here where Paul is lamenting over the lost state of his people. He's sitting there going, brothers, like my heart's desire and my prayer is that they would be saved. And he's longing for their salvation. And he loves them with a genuine love and affection. And, and church, I'll, I'll just let you I think I heard uh, one of my good friends a little while ago, he put it like this. She simply said this. She goes, you'll never reach a people that you don't love. Never forget uh, back in the Pine Cove days, we, uh, it was a Sunday morning. Uh, I was a counselor at Pine Cove and uh, Christian camp. And we would always have all the counselors and gather before all the kids would come that Sunday afternoon, and it's kind of a refreshing time, and we would come for a couple hours before they all arrived, and uh, one of the counselors named Halim Sah, he's now the senior pastor at Austin Stone uh, Community Church, but he was there, and he led us in a challenge that day, 
And he goes, I want to challenge all of us to start praying right now for the difficult people that are going to be in our cabins this week, that we would love them as Christ has loved them. And remember, we sat there as a team, all of the counselors and everybody came, and we know that experience. As counselors, it's like you have about 10 kids every single week, and some of them you're going to naturally gravitate to, and they're going to be a little bit easier, and some of them are going to be more isolated and a little bit more difficult. They may be hostile, angry. They may not really want to be there. But we've all had that experience where uh, there's some kids that are just a little bit more difficult to connect with than others. And so we took the next hour, and we just sat there, and we prayed, Father, would you give me a love and affection for the kids that are more difficult to connect with this week. God, would you do that so that your gospel, so that your love can break through to them? And we sat there and just meditated upon that. As the kids came in that afternoon, I quickly realized um, who the kid was that week that we were going to be, that I was specifically praying for earlier that day. The next day, quickly, well, actually that, that afternoon, he shows up with a number of different suitcases, probably about four different suitcases, each of them filled with different 12-packs. He would drink a 12-pack of Mountain Dew every single day. And uh, he came and he kind of alienated himself from the other kids and, and uh, was off to himself quite a bit. The next day, started realizing and seeing a lot of the tension that he was getting picked on by other kids that were there at the camp a little bit. So I had a little powwow with the rest of our cabin uh, in one of the free times that afternoon and simply said, like, Sir, guys, this is not who he's called us to be and made a little challenge to our kids that they would go and love him, that they would care for him, that they would include him, that they would be Jesus to him this week. And I'm not kidding you, like that, everything changed in that cabin. Those kids accepted that challenge. And junior high kids began to love that kid in a way, like I, you don't typically see in junior high students. They would bring him in, and instead of making fun, they stood up for him. And they brought him in, they allowed him to play the different sports with him. And they cared for him, and they loved him, they reached out to him. We get to Friday, and these deep friendships have built between that kid and the rest of the cabin. We get to Friday, the gospel presentation is made, he responds in faith. And he comes out on this massive high at the end of the week. I get a letter from his mom two weeks later just talking about how he's not stopped talking about his new friends at camp that week and how he's literally a different kid. And what I'm saying here, church, is that we won't reach a people that we do not love. We won't be able to reach a people that we don't go out there and love the way that God has already loved us while we were still sinners, when we were difficult to love, when we were alienated from him. God fixed his love on you and me in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to come to you and me. And we will not reach a people that we do not love. I want to challenge us in the weeks ahead. Would you begin praying, God, would you help me love my family? Would you help me love that difficult person? Would you help me love that coworker, whoever that neighbor may be, that person? in my life I know you want to break through too but would you help me love them with the love that you have for them today the second prayer that we need to be praying is essentially this we need to be praying for these divine appointments understanding that that God is the one who's leading people to salvation. And again, we see this here in the text. Even in the paradox of responsibility we've talked about, is that God is sovereign. What he began when we were in our mother's womb, even before the bringing about in the time, like he will see to fruition. Like this is who God is. He goes ahead of us and his Holy Spirit woos and he wins and he brings people in. And so this brings a lot of freedom to you and me as we sit there and realize it's not all up to my charisma. It's not all up to my ability to win someone through an argument to Christ. It's not all up to those things. If you're praying and you're saying, God, help me see the people that you've already chosen for me to speak to today. Help me find the people that you've already been preparing to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That day that I was sitting out there at the MSC, I was coming off one of the biggest uh, failures in evangelism. I still joke about it and laugh about it today. 
remember sitting in, on, that, uh, on that bench for about five or six minutes and just sitting there kind of going, wow, that was embarrassing. That was a really, really humiliating experience. And I remember sitting there in confusion kind of going, okay, Lord, like what was that whole thing about? Like I was convinced that, you know, you wanted me to come out here and to share this thing. I go out there to freeze. I was like, you know, I was in that moment where I'm blaming God like that was his fault or something like that. And, uh, but I'm having this conversation kind of going, okay, Lord, what was that all, all about? And when I'm sitting there on the bench, there's another guy that comes and he sits down on the bench next to me and he's really frazzled and he's got all these books with him. And he's like, hey man, what's going on? I was like, it's, it's good to meet you. I was like, what are, what, what are you doing? He's like, man, he's like, I've got, it's finals week and he had this final and this final and this final and this final. He goes, bro, I'm just overwhelmed. I've got so many things going on. And he just starts talking and, and he's like, I've got this and I've got that. And he's like, I, I don't even know how I'm going to be able to manage this entire load. And I was like, well, I was like, man, would you, I was like, I, I get it. I'm in the middle of finals too, and it's pretty overwhelming. I was like, would it be weird if I prayed with you about it right now? And he's like, no, man, I would, he's like, I would love that actually. And the way I sat there and I prayed with him about his finals that week. And he come out of that and we come out of the prayer and he simply looks at me and he goes, hey man, so like, are you like a church guy or something like that? And uh, I was like, I, I don't know if I'm a, I was like, I'm a Christian and uh, I do go to church. I love the church and everything. And uh, but I was like, I'm a Christian. And, uh, and he goes, really? He goes, that's really interesting because I've been feeling a lot lately that God was leading me back into church at some point and I don't really know what that means. And I'm not kidding you. This guy began initiating conversation with me and we started having a conversation. I ended up walking him through the gospel. There was no objections, which never happens at all. And he simply says yes, and it was the most biggest layup in the world. But what I'm saying here is, like, when God has gone before you and already prepared the way, there's nothing you can do to mess it up. And, we, and this is the beauty of the paradox of responsibility. It's not all up to you. He's not looking at your winsomeness and your charisma. He's looking at your availability. Are you willing to go with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bring it to somebody who needs it? Are you willing to pray and say, okay, Father, I know that you're already out there. Like, kind of like Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Like this is beautiful story, this guy. And, and God leads Philip to go down this road and he finds this Ethiopian eunuch. And the dude is already there reading the scrolls of Isaiah. And Philip finds him and he's like, hey man, what you reading? He's like, I really don't know. It's this Isaiah guy. And he's like, I really don't know what I'm reading. He's like, can you explain it to me? And he goes, yes, I can. It's like, this is what God does. He goes ahead and he's like, uh, he, he's going, he's going I've, I've already paved the way for success. That eunuch, he simply says, how am I supposed to understand what I'm reading unless someone comes and explains it to me? And she's like, this is what Paul's saying here in this text. Like, how are people going to know unless you come and you share it? How are people going to know the beauty of God's grace, everything that he's done for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, unless you and I know that we've been sent? And so I want to encourage us and I want to implore us as a church body, as we go into the world with acts of compassion, and we go and we serve our community, that we do it in love, that we would pray and we would say, okay, Father, would you give me a love for our community? Would you give me a love that is supernatural, that, that, that allows me to love people the way that you love them? But Father, also, every single day, would you make me aware of the divine opportunities that are before me already? Would you allow me to find these people that are waiting for somebody to come and to tell them today? And then after that, we simply go. And my hope and my prayer is that we would be a church that does go in a holistic fashion, right? That we go with acts of compassion, that we go serving and loving our neighbors and our community with the love of Jesus Christ, but that we would also go with such a strong fervor, understanding the grace and the freedom and the joy and the life that is found only in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this righteousness that is given to you and to me when we receive it by faith. 
Church, there is life in this message. There is life in this message. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. May we be just excited about going and serving as we are going and sharing. And may we see that if you have been saved, you've also been sent. Father, we love you, God. We praise you for everything you've done for us in Jesus Christ, God. We acknowledge that we would still be lost and dead in our sins if you didn't come after us. So Jesus, right now, I just want to ask that you, through the Holy Spirit right now, would give us your love for the world. God, that we wouldn't rely on a natural expression of that, Father, that we wouldn't try to do things in and of our own strength. Father, that we would love our community, that we would love people the way that you do, God. Father, I pray that we would rise up and that we would accept the responsibility and the opportunity that we have to go and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a world that's longing for your grace. I pray that you would open up eyes, that you would prepare hearts to receive it. And Father, I even pray this right now in 2021, when it seems like people are walking away from the church, God, would you add would you add to our number daily those who are being saved? Father, would you add to our number daily those who are saying yes to what you've called us to do? Father, would you add to our number daily those who are growing in our faith, taking new steps of faith, risking it all because you're worthy of it all, Father? God, would you add, would you bring increase, Lord Jesus, all for the praise and for the glory of your name? God, we love you, we praise you. Be glorified in our gathering, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.